Hey, I'm Corey. And I'm Lori. And this is the Nourish Circle Podcast. Join the band as we gather in our Nourish Circle and talk all things weight-inclusive, haze, non-diet, and whatever else is nourishing us. This episode is sponsored in partnership with the Weight Neutral for Diabetes Care Symposium. The Weight Neutral for Diabetes Care Symposium is an online training to truly help professionals learn about the intersections of diabetes, disordered eating, stigma, and health behaviors. It will offer all health professionals who work in diabetes care a chance to explore a weight-neutral approach and how this paradigm offers effective care and treatment for patients. The symposium focuses on the intersections of weight stigma, diabetes, eating disorders, and more. Learn and connect with the 16 speakers from around the world who will accelerate your understanding of the nuances and intersection between counseling, diabetes, and weight neutral care. See show notes for a link to the www.wn4dcsymposium.com. CEU credits are also available. Today on the Nourish Circle podcast, we are talking to Amy McDonald, who completed her undergrad at Brescia University College in 2007 and master's in concurrent internship at Western in 2009. Since then, she has been working as a public health dietitian at the Huron County Health Unit and works in a variety of different areas, including family health, schools, chronic disease prevention, food insecurity, food literacy, and weight bias. Amy is an active member of the Ontario Dietitians in Public Health. She is also a member of the Association for Size Diversity and Health, ASTA, and prefers to use a health at every size approach in her work. Amy is an advocate for preventing preoccupation with food and weight and supporting the development of a healthy relationship with food, activity, and our bodies. In our episode today, we talked to Amy about food literacy, weight bias, and how she experienced these in her role in public health. She also talks a little bit about how it is working in a weight-centric system. And as always, we end with what is currently nourishing Amy. I hope you enjoy our Nourish Circle today. Hi, Amy. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Corey and Lori. Thanks so much for having me. We are so excited. Sorry. <laughs> we're so excited to have you. Of course. Look, at we're so excited. We're talking over top of each other already. Yes, Amy, I think both Lori and I have had the opportunity to get to know you over the last few years in your public health world. So we are so excited to find out a little bit more about what you're up to and how you have been able to get to where you're at in the work that you're doing. So we would like to start off by asking you if there's any privileges or frameworks that you're currently working from and identifying with that would just help to set the tone of our conversation. Okay. So I am a white, cis, hetero woman. I'm married with two kids we were able to have without accessing fertility treatment. I have thin privilege. So I haven't experienced fat stigma when accessing healthcare or trying to buy clothing or sporting equipment or other aspects of my life. I grew up, you know, middle class, although my parents certainly went without a lot of material items for my mom to be able to stay home when we were little. Um, but we grew up with lots of extended family and friends who supported us as well. And I know that's certainly a privilege. I often um, think in terms of my post-secondary education, how 
I really need to recognize that, you know, I was able to receive OSAP, which is the Ontario Student Assistance Program, when that wasn't adequate. My parents were willing and able to co-sign a bank loan, and not everyone has that. Um, as a result, I was able to get through undergrad and be able to participate in learning and volunteer opportunities that I wouldn't have been able to if I had to work all the time. I also lived with my then boyfriend, now husband, um, which made it so much easier and was able to do an unpaid iPad internship. That's um, a major barrier for people with diverse backgrounds to be able to become a dietitian at all. Um, and then that has allowed me to have a professional job um, that has been quite secure. Um, although now we're hearing Doug Ford has made some announcements about public health. We'll see what comes out of that. Um, but it certainly has allowed me to have a more comfortable living. Um, you know, we have a dual income. I also found, you know, I had the opportunity to grow up with family and friends of all shapes and sizes. And I remember calculating my BMI in high school in health class, which is one of those things I do not recommend as an effective learning strategy. But I remember thinking, this is ridiculous. This doesn't make sense. My BMI was at the top end of the supposedly ideal range when I was in high school. Um, and I knew damn well that lots of other people in my life would be above that who didn't eat or move differently than me. So I've always been skeptical of um, the overvaluation of, of health and weight. Um, so over the years, I've really moved into a health at every size paradigm um, in public health health equity, social justice are really important. It's been something that's um, been important within our health unit for a long time and is now really clearly part of the Ontario uh, public health standards. We also are looking at mental health. Um, mental health promotion is something that's not, that's kind of been in and out of the standards over the years. Um, and having more and more opportunities to learn, learn about trauma and violence-informed care and cultural humility as well. And it's really, um, I'm finding my practice and the way I talk about things shifts the more I learn. Um, it's, you know, a, an ongoing learning process. So Amy, that was such a beautiful answer about how your privileges and your frameworks uh, work together and how you work in public health. Um, one thing I've heard in public health is the term food literacy. So I was wondering if you could explain what food literacy is and how you experience this in your role. So food literacy is a little bit of a new term. We, we have often in the past talked about things like food skills being those mechanical hands-on skills to get food um, prepared and on the table. Food literacy is a little bit broader in that it looks at all of the different attributes um, or factors, the knowledge and skills and having the self-efficacy and confidence um, as well as the external resources, those societal and ecologic factors to be able to get food on the table. Um, it's something that we've been looking at in public health as a way to help people um, you know, eat in a more healthy way if they have the skills and the confidence to be able to do so, is that sometimes, um, sometimes it's done completely without health in mind, which is fine. And other times it's done with such emphasis on health and, you know, sometimes using, because we don't have a lot of really great um, data on 
you know, how people eat or um, health outcomes or ways of um, measuring how effective they learn these skills, people say, oh, well, let's make this about obesity. Or let's make this about, you know, healthy weight. And I'm going, this, this is problematic because it has nothing to do with what people's weight is in the first place, how their food literacy skills are. It even has nothing to do with people's income in the first place. We know that um, we've seen a bit of a de-skilling of the population, you know, across the board um, be as we have had more, um, you know, more takeout options, more restaurant options, more um, packaged and processed food options, we don't have to cook everything from scratch. And not everyone has the skills or the history of skills in their family to be able to learn how to do that. Um, I know I have a major privilege in that both my mom and my dad cooked and were able to prepare you know, foods from whatever was in the house. And that, so as a result, and as a result of their expectation that myself and my sisters learn how to cook, um, you know, a meal for the family, I was able to build those skills and be able to use those throughout my life. And some people don't have those opportunities. So in public health, we think it's important to um, help make more opportunities for people to learn those food skills. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I've never actually read the definition of food literacy anywhere and it's not it's not perfect um you know when the end goal is to make healthy food choices i don't think to me my end goal is not always about making healthy food choices my end goal is having people to feel good about the foods that they're able to eat because they have the skills to be able to do that mm -hmm. um, it's about having you know positive relationship with food and um you know, a positive attitude towards trying new foods and learning new things and experimenting for what works well for you in your context at this time, um, I think is much more important than whether it is healthy according to some external food rules. And it just, it really kind of helps me from someone who practices mindful eating in my practice that food literacy, really a lot of what you're explaining is about just living from a mindful perspective. And it's probably for those of us who are very research oriented, another world for us to search for and understand the research behind food literacy, because that will be something like you're saying, if it's a newer term, that will be something in public health and in all of our messaging that um, we can start paying attention to the research coming out. Yeah, and I think the thing that often gets forgotten when we think about um, improving people's skills or capacity to do certain things, we often forget about the systems in which they learn those things. So the, the impact of the food system and the food we have access to, the impact of our socioeconomic environment and the social determinants of health and what we have access to, you know, families that don't have a full kitchen or freezer or um, the finances to purchase things in bulk have a much different situation in what they can do at home than a family who has all of those things. And, and what's normal and what, what are the beliefs and practices in your family and in your culture um, can have a huge influence too on our food literacy. 
Yes, and it's just one of those layers that has many sub layers to peel back in those conversations to have with folks. And so that's why I find public health so fascinating of crafting those messages is probably very challenging, especially when you're working from that context of food literacy. And then our next question around what is weight bias and how some of the documents you've been sending, you know, we live a few hours away from each other and the public health area that you're working in. There's been a lot over the last couple of years of sort of documents coming from your public health unit and public health in general. So I'm curious, how did, how did all of that start in terms of just being aware of that weight bias in your unit and in public health in general? Did it come from sort of the Ontario or Canada level, or is that something you saw start in your public health unit based on the work you were doing? That's a good question. So I have been in this role for 10 years, minus two maternity leaves. And when I started, I had a manager who asked me to develop an obesity strategy. And my first instinct was, what? <laughs> um, <laughs> And so it took me about a year to kind of get settled into the role. And I reached out to my colleagues and other health units about what they were doing. At that time, we had public health standards that said we needed to focus on healthy weights. It was all throughout the standards. Um, and some colleagues and other health units shared what they were doing. And um, one in particular shared their um, how important they thought it was not to focus on weight at all. And it was something they had agreed upon in their chronic disease and injury prevention team, but they hadn't managed to get um, organization wide yet. So I really used that position statement that they had crafted as kind of the basis of our work starting here because I felt it had the best fit. Um, I had done a lot of reading and and looked into a lot of the literature and from what I could find it made the most sense so we we started having conversations here um, myself our health promoters that work in physical activity and other areas and our public health nurses and we started working on crafting our own internal policies and procedures and um it took a while. It, it was a slow process. Um, so when we knew that the Healthy Kids Community Challenge um, was coming to here to our area, we made the decision that we, we needed to, we needed to take um, action and have some sort of policy and procedure in place. So Healthy Kids Community Challenge is basically um, it came out of the province's goal to reduce childhood obesity and um, everything that I had learned leading up to it really was that we don't focus on weight. It's problematic. So we, we knew we were going to be one of the communities that was doing this program and we, we wanted to make some things happen in our organization to really look at um, how we were going to do that in a way that we didn't feel was causing more harm than good. So we, in 2014, we implemented our own um, internal um, 
policy and procedure. I went around and did training with all of the different teams and we had lots of co good conversation. Um, and then I went off on mat leave. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> I came back and, you know, I was pleased to hear some of my colleagues saying the things that I had been talking about, but I also found there were other things that there was still more opportunity for improvement. So we went through kind of a program planning situational assessment process and um, looked at what does the literature say? What does the, you know, what's the political climate and context and what are the things that are influencing not just the way we craft messages, but the way messages are received. And, um, you know, what's going on within our organization and within our partners' organizations and how can we make a bit of a difference. So we really, um, it was a fantastic opportunity to get management across the organization on board with the approach, you know, taking a a 60 page document and saying, look, like we need to look at weight bias and weight stigma. And here's all of the evidence behind it that we could gather in this short period of time. And how can we start to, you know, we really want to get management to support the movement forward, both internally and um, starting to move it out into the community instead of just thinking about ourselves, what we're doing within the building. And so I don't think I actually touched on what weight, weight bias is, <laughs> but basically we know that there is this, you know, it's cultural, it's health systems, it's so much bigger than that, but we, people are judged based on their body size and their body mass index and, and it's, it's causing stigma, prejudice, discrimination, and, and it's really harmful to people's health and that um, some of the health effects that we associate with higher weights are actually probably due to the stigma that people are experiencing. Um, and so weight bias can affect people across the weight spectrum, but we find, um, you know, fat stigma is really what's hurting people at the higher end of the weight spectrum. Um, and we really need to be taking some efforts to address it. So I've been really excited to see that lots of other health units are also looking at this. Um, they're doing rapid literature reviews. They're looking at their internal policies and procedures. They're, we, you know, we had a group of dietitians in the southern, southwestern part of the province come together and form a position statement, which has been adopted by our um, group the Ontario Dietitians in Public Health so we have that that we can share and um, you know we're trying to make some steps to change the way that we're doing things um, not just in nutrition and physical activity health promotion but also in you know healthy growth and development and breastfeeding and um, food literacy and all of the other areas that um, weight bias can just kind of seep into because that's the culture that we have, you know, grown up in and that's the culture that exists right now. That's a lot of work. Yeah. It's, it sounds to me like there's a lot of advocacy going on. Absolutely. It is. Advocacy is a major part of it. Um, and it's, 
it's something that it's, it's invigorating. It's, it's nice to see change happen. And in public health, change can be very slow, but we also see we've had lots of, um, you know, quick wins. And, and, you know, one example is there was a resource that was going out um, in some of our quit kits for tobacco cessation and, and our admin staff was just kind of flipping through, reviewing everything. And she goes, Amy, you've got to see this. I don't think you're going to like it. And it had some terribly weight biased messaging in it. And so, you know, reached out to some of my colleagues in different health units and, and their contacts in the tobacco world. And everybody agreed. It's, it's not a, an appropriate resource. It's problematic and everybody's pulling it. So Amazing. it's sometimes those tiny little things can have an influence, you know, province wide. Um, so as much as sometimes I feel like I'm banging my head against the wall, sometimes um, I'm really excited to see those, those small wins um, happen. Can I just ask about the head banging? Because I'm sitting here thinking, how on earth did you get dietitians collectively in public health to all work together on creating that statement? Because yes. it seems like in dietetics that there's still a very distinct divide in terms of folks that are, you know, open to learning about weight bias and discrimination and recognizing where it stems from in terms of our messaging. And then there are some that are just, I don't want to say in an stigmatizing way, but it just seems like they don't understand it. So yeah. Can you talk about that? Like you, you said about head banging and I'm just curious, how did you do that in terms of, did you experience pushback or is it just collectively you all decided together, let's do this. So it certainly wasn't me by myself by any means. Actually, I wasn't even part of the initial um, approach to develop this position statement. I was on mat leave <laughs> and um, several of us had shared our our approaches, um, including the policies that we had um, we had put together, and my colleagues made the decision that we we need to do a formal literature review to support this, so that we have we know that this is a concept that can be difficult for people. Um, so there was a group of us from several of the southwestern health units that got together. Um, we had our, the public health librarian assistant coming up a, with a research question and, and um, a lit search for us. And we reviewed all of the articles that came up and we used it to, um, to make a more evidence-based, um, take one of those sample policies that one of the health units had already done and make it more um, high I guess, reference it and, and show that there's some literature behind this. And so, um, and then we went through the process of sharing it with our dietitians in public health. So it's about 200 of us um, and get feedback from the different working groups in different areas. And, um, and then we made some revisions and now it's been adopted by our organization. And so some of us have had our, um, our public health units endorse it 
um, ours has. Other health units are still working on that process. It's slow. Um, it can take some time to get through levels of management, or it's not always, um, you know, in a format that works for every health unit because we do some things differently. Um, so that's been part of the process. But I should almost, I guess, I should back up to and say that um, looking at how weight influences health critically or how we you know help support people to eat in a healthier way um, without you know negative messaging has been something public health has been trying to do for a long time absolutely some traditional public health messages have been really problematic but um, at least within Ontario I know that most public health dietitians who work with young children use like the Ellen Satter division of responsibility and feeding model that can fit nicely with the health at every size approach. Um, and so, you know, we've, we know that focusing on weight in a negative way doesn't work. We know that focusing even on specific nutrients or specific foods in a negative way doesn't work. But we also find it doesn't always translate well into our work with older children or adults um, or even other parenting models that exist. Um, so we've, you know, there, there's been work happening over the years. It, it's like, I think it's just a learning process. We're all learning, um, and having opportunities to, um, you know, as the research evidence gets stronger and stronger, um, it's making it much easier to get public health dietitians on board. And then the work is getting our other colleagues on board and the other organizations that we work with. Um, in doing some of the reading that I've done, I've really seen, you know, there's, there's a spectrum in terms of the kind of like the, the weight loss industry fad diets to the obesity is a disease model that talks about more, you know, weight management and does address that weight bias is a problem, but doesn't, but still has a weight normative approach. And then there's the, and then, you know, kind of, I don't even know what you'd call it in between. And then there's a health at every size and fat studies models. And, and I would say that, you know, within our group of dietitians, there's nobody's in the weight loss industry area, but, but a lot of people are kind of in between that obesity is a disease and health at every size approach. Um, but it's shifting. There's more and more of us moving further along that spe spectrum as we learn and, and find how it works um, with the populations that we work with. That's so great. Um, it seems like there's a lot of learning going on and probably a lot of unlearning as well, because as dietitians, we're often trained in that weight normative model. Oh, we totally are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, um, I have, I would say I've always probably leaned more towards a health at every size approach, but I definitely wasn't totally there. And, and it takes time. And I, you know, I, I was going through a bunch of files, cleaning up files the other day, and I would find things from when I started and go, yeah, I'm still on board with that. And other things I go, oh, I would, I would do that a little different now. So like, it's amazing what you learn and you shift as, um, as you learn more about the research, but also as, as our context changes, like, you know, think about the examples of, 
you know, weight loss industry that are starting to use non-diet language, even though they're very much diets. Um, You know, we have to keep that in mind. What is the context? Like if, and even sometimes with our health messaging, we, we go, I don't want to say this because I feel like it might be harmful. And I'm going, but we got to keep it, keep in mind the context, like how are people hearing this? It's not about how did we intend it? It's how are people hearing it? Yes. The intent versus the impact. Yeah. Like intent has value, but it's, but it doesn't outweigh what the impact is. Yes. We can't post all over Twitter. That's not what I meant. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't work. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And that's kind of one thing I want to ask is I find you very well thought out and measured and wonderful comments on social media. Um, And so we've talked a bit about working in the weight-centric system um, at Public Health, but also you, you appear to be doing advocacy kind of outside of that a little bit in your own world or universe, so to say. So um, how would you recommend someone stay as wonderfully measured as you are on um, social media and and continue to send those messages that you're trying to send? So I have to admit when I, you know, initially when I started working in this role, I I wasn't sharing work-related things on, you know, Facebook. But over the years, as I've gotten more comfortable with my my knowledge and understanding of how we need to shift our culture, it has become more important to me to start sharing that. So I, I started sharing some things on Facebook, just, you know, with my own circle. It's not a, there's no business page. There's no, um, it's not connected with my work in public health, you know, clearly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, gradually got introduced to Twitter and Instagram and, and it's just, it's, it's been an opportunity to connect with other like-minded colleagues and other like-minded individuals in our community. We've actually had, um, I've had some positive experiences personally connecting with, um, you know, friends and acquaintances and a few individuals that I didn't previously know in our community to do some work um, at a local yoga studio, do some body image um, you know, kind of workshop type things. And it's been really fun. Um, but I guess the, you know, the way I craft my messages, I think it's, you know, I came into this role as a dietitian. You know, I had an interest in health and I had an interest in science and I actually wanted to teach. Oh. Yeah. And I decided to, you know, I'd applied for general science and kinesiology and food and nutrition. And um, I actually thank my dad for saying, you know, the food and nutrition thing sounds like it has more opportunities. And, and I didn't really learn about what becoming a dietitian meant until I got into my undergrad. Um, so I, I think, and I, and throughout that process, I did a did do some coursework outside of food and nutrition so that I could potentially teach. And I think having a little bit of a broader learning opportunity was helpful Mm -hmm. and um, coming at becoming a dietitian, knowing that communications was part of it and, 
and being able to translate what I was learning to the people around me, whether it be one-on-one or whether it be a community or a population, that that has certainly helped. Um, you know, I work, I also work with some great communications people that have ha- certainly helped build my skills. Um, and I've also found, sorry, I'm totally all over the place, but I've also found becoming a parent has helped me too. Yes, for um, sure. Having, you know, I, I worked quite, you know, more than half of my time here without having kids. And I don't think I was bad at my job, but I definitely think I learned a lot from the process of accessing all of those services, you know, to, you know, prenatally and hospital and, um, you know, well baby visits and all of that kind of stuff. I learned so much about how, you know, there's such value in research-based expert recommendations but they're not the be all to end all. There is no one size fits all approach for everyone. We need to consider everyone's context individually. And, and that's a hard thing to do in public health. But, um, I think, you know, my social media has, has given me an opportunity to practice that language and those skills and to learn from other people and to be able to share messages that I think are really important and hopefully help shift other people's opinions unless we're in our own little circle and just sharing with each other. But (laughs) so true, right? (laughs) I think if we're like, I completely value some of my colleagues who are very strongly outspoken and, and willing to call people out and, and have, um, you know, strong conversations and arguments on social media. I think that's important, but I think in my role and in my perspective, like I really want to try and call people in and the opportunity mm-hmm. to, to expand people's understanding. Like I, in my role, we, we've gone out and we've talked to, you know, healthcare organizations and presented to them. And if they're willing to work with me and they're not quite where I want them to be yet, I'm still willing to work with them. Yes. Um, And, you know, we all know that with our clients too, we're willing to work with them from where they're at. So I think we have to do that with some of our partners too. We don't want to, um, it's not all about being nice. I definitely share my opinion and my approach and my preference, but I, I think we want, I want to do it in a way that I'm hopefully bringing people into the fold rather than um, turning them off. That's so wonderful. And that's kind of where I was thinking, you know, how do you do all of that and still have some boundaries? Because not only are you an early adopter, but you're a visionary in the work that you're doing. You knew very early on in your life and in your career that something's not right. And so I think that's just so powerful to speak to the kind of person you are that you from very early on knew that something had to shift. And so kudos to you for figuring that out very early on. Cause I think it took me a little bit longer to really place what was going on. And so how, how do you set those boundaries in terms of the conversations you want to make with other public health units? Is it something personally that you do, or is it just something that's deeply rooted in you? Or do you have any kind of guidelines you give yourself? Okay, if this is a conversation, this is a boundary I'm going to set. That's a tough one. I think um, some of my recent experiences, I have found, 
you know, if I find something that influences me, my work, my communities, I will speak out and I try and do it in a respectful way and, and leave it open for more conversation. And, um, and sometimes that has allowed me some opportunities to um, speak with different groups and have, um, and, and try and share my message and how I would like to see them um, shift theirs. And sometimes they accept it and sometimes they don't. Mm-hmm. And I have to be very, um, it, it has taken some work for me to get to the point where I can go, I can't change everyone yet. <laughs> um, and, and I can't control every message that goes out, even within my own organization, I can't control every nutrition message that goes out. Mm-hmm. And I can work to shift things as best as I can. Um, and try and build partnerships and relationships in order to continue to do so. Um, and if we can't make those changes, we can agree to disagree. Um, and as much as sometimes I'd like to just put up a wall and say, okay, I don't want to talk to you because we disagree. Um, you know, I can maybe do that for a short period of time, but I don't want to do that ongoing because those relationships are so important and, um, in our work and and then the other thing is you know I have found also having kids has been good at me shutting it off better when I get home um, mm. I'm still you know a little bit on social media but I don't spend as much time doing work while I'm at home as I used to now I have the privilege of having a full-time you know Monday to Friday mostly 8.30 to 4.30-ish, although I do lots of evenings for presentations, but I have, I have that privilege that I can, I can shut it off when I go home. I don't have to be doing work when I go home, even though I know I have tons more that I could be doing. Um, having my family at home who want my attention has helped me to shut it off a little bit better. And yes, I certainly go on my phone and get on some of my social media conversations and connections, which, but that's more about supporting me and support and making me feel that, um, that the work that I'm doing is worth it. Um, and, Mm -hmm. and then otherwise trying to, trying to just step away and it's hard, but, um, it's, it's definitely, I think worthwhile. That is something I totally agree with you when, you know, I have two kids myself that are young and um, we were having a conversation about this before we hit record, right? In terms of coming home and turning off, I think has been an ever evolving process for me personally. And I'm wondering if you had a similar experience, is that something it sounds like you're still working through on how to do that when you're so passionate about the work that's kind of like our personal boundary of, okay, you know, it's the weekend, I'm going to shut everything off and, and just be partner mom this weekend. Oh, how? I don't know. It's hard. It's, um, you know, sometimes it's intentionally not bringing my work laptop home, even though I know I have work I could do. If I don't bring it home, it's a lot harder to do it. (laughs) Um, Sometimes it's setting my cell phone up on the counter out of reach. That's not right. I'm not picking it up every time I think of something. Um, sometimes it's getting out of the house. 
going mm-hmm. for a walk or going to a playground or going, you know, I'm also lucky to have my sisters have kids the same age as me. And so we can, you know, go do play dates pretty easily without a whole lot of coordination. It, and, you know, it's getting out and um, doing some other things has helped me to set boundaries. Yeah, I I'm, I wouldn't say I'm good at it. but I those boundaries, it kind of... <laughs> Yeah, I, I think we all are. Um, it's something that I know has been kind of a theme in this podcast is trying to set those boundaries and take personal space and time. And, mm-hmm. um, and that kind of lands us on our question that we like to wrap up our sessions with is what's nourishing you right now? It doesn't have to be work related. It can be personal. It can be something that is nourishing you today, but won't nourish you tomorrow. Just what do you feel is like nourishing you today? Up until today, the weather was getting a wee bit warmer and the sun was shining a lot more and that's definitely nourishing me. Um, And getting out and going for walks and being outside with my kids or you know, sitting and having a beer on the back deck with my husband. Um, but also I'm finding, you know, it's, it's both professional and personal, you know, reading and listening to podcasts and, um, you know, things that keep my brain working, but don't require me to do work <laughs> are, are really helpful. Um, and, you know, it's amazing to, you know, my daughter is two and loves to go for walks in the stroller. So we'll often hop in the stroller. I'll put an earphone in one ear, leave the other ear out so I can hear her if she wants to have a conversation and listen to a podcast and walk. And um, it's nice. Um, or, you know, when the older one wants to go out, needs a little more hands-on with a two and a four-year-old. But um you know, we live relatively close to a beach and some great parks. And so we just get outside and enjoy nature and playgrounds. And, um, and that, that's really important. I also, um, I always have to keep in mind that if I'm not able to move through walking, doing a little bit of yoga or getting out and playing some adult recreational sports, um, ball hockey and soccer are about to get started hockey just ended um and that's definitely something I do for me wow so So fun Mm -hmm. um it's always nice to connect with you when we're together so next time we're gonna have to do like a recreational sport thing because that would be fun um and so it's been so wonderful to hear just how amazing of a human you are even more than we already knew and we would love to help direct folks to connect with you and keep learning from you. Is there a place that you're really active that you would like people to follow? Well, people are welcome to check me out on um, Instagram and Twitter. I sort of go through phases where I'm regularly there and then not there so much. So I can send my handles for show notes. Um, I think it's at Amy on Twitter and at Amy mcdonald on instagram um and you're certainly welcome to follow me and check me out i do do some public posts on on my facebook page as well but that's also kind of more of a personal connection there awesome well we will make sure we get all of that posted when this goes on live so thank you so much amy it's been so wonderful and i just love you know even the context that you provided in that first question around your privileges, it's always something we are learning more 
and just hearing how others frame it and seeing that experience in your life, it really just solidifies that there's always going to be work for us to do. And the community is so important. We need to be able to do this work together and to call each other in and sometimes call each other out. So thank you for providing that space to have that conversation so openly and, and to really honor the fact that sometimes we get it right and sometimes we don't. And just to keep doing things that nourish us, to keep us in check with our, our lives as well, to provide that. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Amy. It was so wonderful to connect with you today. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I have to say, um, I really appreciated getting to meet you guys in the fall at your Nourished Circle retreat. And um, just to prepare for that, I wore my t-shirt today. Oh, amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Yes, we got to do another one of those soon. Yeah, it's it's fantastic to have the opportunity to connect with other like-minded individuals face-to-face. And it's it's nice to be able to do it. I love getting together with my public health folks, but it's also pretty awesome to be able to get together with other dietitians in other areas as well. Yes, I was very humbled that day when I found out how far you had driven to come retreat with us. <laughs> I was like, oh my goodness, I'm not sure I would drive that far for seeing me but hey awesome (laughs) I was also very very grateful that I had um, a student who had been my dietetic intern come with me otherwise I certainly would have had to come and stay overnight yes Mm. yeah it was so wonderful that you brought your intern um, because again we need to work um, I think on all levels of dietetics to kind of talk about this message and yeah I didn't even talk about that today but I get um, several students usually every year and um, I was actually asked to speak to Brescia um, dietetic practicum students in uh, December and so a colleague who does part-time here and part-time at a family health team and one of my and that former dietetic intern they joined me and we had a, a webinar with um, their dietetic practicum students and to share the non-diet and health and resize approach with them, which was really fantastic. Amazing. You're doing such amazing work. I'm having fun with it. Today's episode is brought to you by our Join the Band Teespring store. Click the link in our show notes to check out our badass non-diet dietitian merchandise. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Nourish Circle. Don't forget to like us on iTunes or Spotify and subscribe so that you never miss an episode.